What up, Cavs Nation? I'm your host, Ethan Sands, and this is another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. I'm joined by your favorite beat reporter, Chris Fedor. What up, Chris? What's going on, Ethan? How are you, man? You excited about uh, the in-season tournament continuing into the next round? Knockout round coming next. Well, Chris, unfortunately, the Cavs weren't able to reach the knockout round of the in-season tournament, but I'll be honest. This was something that a lot of people had some backlash on at the beginning, including myself. I'll throw myself under the bus a little bit. But seeing how much the players bought in and the incentive alone of a trophy and $500,000 made me have a change of heart because of how bad the players wanted to make it to the next round and to the knockout round. I think the in-season tournament could be here to stay for the next couple of years, especially with some tweaks. What did you like and what did you not like about the tournament? So I had the same reaction that you did, right? I, I just was skeptical. I know how some of these NBA teams treat the NBA regular season. There are some teams that just treat it like an afterthought because it's all about April, May, and June. Not every team is built that way, but the championship or bust type teams their focus is on the biggest prize imaginable. And they just try and get through the regular season as best they can, not overextend themselves, make it so that they peak at the right time of year, because it's all about, for them, the playoffs and winning a championship. But to see even some of those teams, Milwaukee comes to mind, Golden State was fighting hard. To see those teams buy in to the in-season tournament, even Boston, they went to hack a drumming against the Chicago Bulls. So like treating it like it was different than the regular season, it was more meaningful than the regular season. I thought that was great. And that's what the in-season tournament needs. It was November. This for the NBA is usually a sleepy month. The results of games this early in the regular season are essentially inconsequential. Teams are still trying to figure themselves out. They're still trying to see what works, what doesn't work. What lineups can we go to when? What's our pet set in end-of-game situations? So usually, this time of year doesn't have drama, intrigue, excitement, thrill. But the in-season tournament brought all of that to November. I was on the edge of my seat last night watching the Cavs against the Hawks. I was hitting refresh on my computer, figuring out what Boston was doing, Milwaukee, New York, Brooklyn, because so many different aspects of what's going on in the in-season tournament all matter all at the same time, and it just raises the stakes to a different level, and it creates so much fun and excitement. I love it. I hope it is here to stay, because this stuff is awesome. And even Isaac Okoro at practice today talked a little bit about how the tradition of the game is going to be changing based yeah. on how, which game they're playing. If it's a regular, regular season game, then they're going to respect the game at the end of the game and not go and try and get layups at the end of the game or shoot threes and get point differential to higher their chances of getting to the knockout round. I mean, think about this, Ethan. If there was any question about would these teams care, would they treat these games a different kind of way? Think about this just from the Cavs standpoint, okay? Last Tuesday, they play on the road against Philadelphia. That was an in-season tournament game. Those were high stakes given where Philly was in East Group A, given where the Cavs were in East Group A, and the margin of victory, point differential, all that kind of stuff. 
So the Cavs in that game against Philly essentially go all out to win that thing. They gassed themselves out and basically gave up a win against the Miami Heat the night after that because they were playing Miami on the second night of a back-to-back and they were completely spent because they spent so much of their energy mentally and physically to get that win against Philadelphia because they deemed it more important because it was an in-season tournament win. And they essentially just punted the Miami game on a night that Miami didn't have BAM. (laughs) So, So like that tells you the kind of mindset and approach that some of these teams were taking when it came to in-season tournament group play versus regular season games right around those games. And for fans that don't understand why the Cavs didn't make it to the knockout round, they were not in control of their destiny nearly at all. The only thing that they had in control was they had to beat the Hawks. But the other thing was, J.B. Bickerstaff before the game said that they had a number of 20, winning by 20 as their goal for the game. They ended up winning by 23. But because of how the Knicks and other teams played that night, they would have had to win by like 40 to make it to the knockout round. And they were 3-1 and one at the end of the first round of the in-season tournament. It reminded me of like the baseball tournaments that I used to go to back when I was 13, 14, 15 years old, where you had to go based on run differential. It's like you have... It's A bracket, B bracket, C bracket. You got all these other numbers. And as a stats guy, I loved it because you're like, you want to score all these points, get all these runs, whatever the game you're playing is. But for the fans, it can be really, really daunting to try and keep up with what's going on, what's happening. Not just for the fans, right? For the players, too. There was confusion on the players' part here. It's so funny because following that game against the 76ers, I asked a lot of the players, I said, hey, like, do you understand where you stand at this point in time when it comes to the in-season tournament? And I said to Evan Mobley, I said, do you realize by beating Philadelphia, like you're still alive in this thing? And he turned to me and he said, Chris, we've lost once in group play. I certainly hope we would be alive in this thing. I certainly hope we would still have a shot. And I was like, yeah, but you don't really understand what's going on here. Because there are a lot of other teams like you, Evan, that also have one loss. And your point differential is minuscule. And he turned to me and he said, point differential? (laughs) Like he had no clue that that was going to be something that was going to matter down the road in terms of a tiebreaker. I think players and teams are programmed to the usual tiebreakers that matter when it comes to the playoffs and the play-in tournament. And all that kind of stuff is head-to-head and conference record and division record, all that kind of stuff doesn't matter in the in-season tournament. Head-to-head does. But the other stuff doesn't matter because you don't play enough games and you certainly don't play conference games where it's going to be like that. So it's point differential. And I said to Evan, I pointed him out. I said, look, look at the wild card standings because right now Indiana is winning this group, not you guys. You guys have to get in via the wild card. And here's the wild card standings. And here's the point differential of this team and that team and this team. And he was like, wow, none of these guys really realized how important that was until even it seemed like it was too late. (laughs) The Cavs realized it and the players realized it going into that Atlanta game. But if they would have understood it better, maybe it was different against Detroit when they were playing at home, a figurative layup. 
where they could have boosted their point margin. They could have juiced it the way that the Knicks juiced theirs by playing against Charlotte. You know what I mean? So I think moving forward, players are going to have a better understanding. Fans are going to have a better understanding. But as it was going on, it was probably a little bit confusing for these guys. Even some teams, Ethan, after winning last night and getting to the wild card, the Knicks in particular, they thought they were going to Las Vegas to play these games coming up. <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 guys. There's one step first and then Las Vegas. And we mentioned J.B. Bickerstaff having that 20 point in mind. Everybody knew what they were going for. Donovan Mitchell mentioned after the game that that's what they were understanding of. I don't know where they got that number. Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The number that I created in my own mind was 16 because like one of the teams that had already solidified a spot was Orlando in terms of their record was done over with. They had already played four games going into last night. Their point differential was already set. It wasn't going to change. It was 22. The Cavs were 16 points behind Orlando. So I was like, I said to somebody after, I said, where did 20 come from? Like, how did you come up with that? And the way that they phrased it is, They were trying to predict how much the Knicks would beat the Hornets by, and they were trying to predict how much the Celtics would beat the Bulls by, and all that kind of stuff was going into the equation. And they still fell short. I know, because the Knicks won by 24. Of course, it was the Knicks. Yeah, right? They can't escape him. (laughs) The the Cavs can't escape the Knicks, but... The one thing that they can escape is trying to figure out how to better the in-season tournament for years to come. And J.B. Bickerstaff said that he believed that the four-game group play was too small of a sample size, even offering the notion of a home-and-home for teams in the same group. And I definitely thought the in-season tournament could have been longer because we talked about at the beginning, like, this was created to get viewership during NCAA NFL season, you would think that because the Super Bowl hasn't happened, college football playoffs are just about to start, now fans are going to just turn back to those games because the in-season tournament is not slowing down, but like it's still in its infancy and you're not as interested. I feel like if group play was longer and the numbers were more significant, like you had more options. I think JB's offer is a good idea. What did you think about the sample size that JB mentioned, Chris? Here's the problem that I run into. I think there's a danger, Ethan, in extending it more. Six games, eight games, 10 games, however many. Because the beauty to me of four is that the magnitude for each one is so high. And you have to put so much focus and so much attention on those games. Because think about it. The Cavs went 3-1. and one. The Orlando Magic went 3-1. and one. A lot of these teams only had one loss, and yet they didn't get in. It's a tough pill to swallow, obviously, but it tells you how much importance is on every one of those four games. And I think if you start extending it to 6, 8, 10, 12, whatever the case may be, It takes away some of the nightly importance of those in-season tournament games, and it gives teams, I think, a comfort and a feeling of, well, we can make it up down the road. We can find a way at the end to go all out in a really favorable matchup 
and try and juice our point total. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that makes sense. It, it's the same thing sometimes when it comes to college football, when they're talking about, you know, expanding the college football playoff to more teams and stuff like that. The whole goal of this thing, besides making money, of course, is to create excitement when it comes to the regular season and give the regular season more meaning than what it already had. And I think they've done that. I think they've made these games matter in a different kind of way. All of the Cavs players talked about these games felt different. We prepared different for these kinds of games. And I just think there's a danger in losing that if they change too much of, of what the in-season tournament can be. I think that like the in-season tournament was extremely interesting, but <laughs> J.B. Bickerstaff had one of my favorite quotes that he said all season so far at the end after knowing that they weren't going to make it and all the other stuff. He still found a positive, which is a common thread for this team. Um, but he mentioned Isaac Okoro's play, obviously mentioning Evan Mobley's play, seven re- seven blocks, a career-high 19 rebounds, but also mentioned Isaac coming off the bench and coming back in his third game from injury. And JB said <laughs> that he compared Isaac Okoro to – Deion Sanders and Darrell Revis based on their ability to shut off one half of the field and Isaac's ability to shut down a player on the defensive end. That's some hefty praise for someone in just his third game back. And I want to get your idea of if Deion Sanders is, in my opinion, the greatest football player of all time. What? You said Deion Sanders is the greatest football player of all time? What are you on? <laughs> so you want me to explain this? <laughs> well, yeah. When you make a statement like that, you're going to have to. Yeah. Well, okay. So listen. So Deion Sanders is the greatest football player to touch the field because of how he could impact the game in so many different ways, Chris. Like he could shut down an entire side of the field at corner. And obviously that's what JB was referring to with Isaac. But Deion also would return kicks and punts would force teams to not want to kick towards him. And obviously in those situations, you have to for punts. And then also he played on offense in key possessions. It felt like every time he had the ball, something special was going to happen. Like, And at a cultural level, Dion was just so cool, smooth, had the perfect lines, all the other stuff. But the amount that he would impact the game on all phases, like you think offense, defense, and special teams, no other player in the history of the NFL, can say they did that like Dion did. And not to mention, he was playing the hardest sport on the planet at the highest level at the same time. And yes, I'm talking about baseball. Okay. Have you heard of a guy named Tom Brady? Yes, I've heard of Tom Brady. Just (laughs) curious. I mean, I don't know that the greatest player is the guy who does the most. I think it's the guy who does the best. And Tom Brady was dominant at his position, the hardest position in the NFL to play, the most important position in the NFL to play. Didn't matter who his running backs were. Didn't matter who his wide receivers were. All those Super Bowl rings, you got to be out your damn mind if you think Deion Sanders had a greater impact on his team than the quarterback, the most important player on the field, who also happened to be the greatest player at the time that he was actually playing the game. 
I, I can agree to disagree on that topic, but can we agree that Deion Sanders is the greatest cornerback to play the game? At yes. Least? Yes. Okay. okay. But there are other positions in the NFL. <laughs> so on that on that note, going back to Isaac and his defensive prowess and comparing him to Dion, the greatest cornerback to play the game, who do you think the greatest all-time defender in the NBA is? Bill Russell. Okay. I have a different person, and I'm not crazy for the person I have. But... Oh, jeez. <laughs> but uh, I'll let you go first. Who are you going to say, Wemby? <laughs> no. <laughs> I got Hakeem Olajuwon. He's the only player with at least 3,000 blocks and 2,000 steals. He's a two-time defensive player of the year, led the league in defensive win shares for four straight seasons, topped the league in blocks per game three times, and had four seasons with an average of at least two blocks and two steals, which is a big deal because there are only six such campaigns in league history, and Homeboy has four of them. So, you still got Bill Russell? Yeah, I still have... Bill Russell. I mean, I think Hakeem Olajuwon was a great defender, and we're obviously talking about great players. And when it comes to great players, it's very, very hard to parse through all of them. And it's different eras and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, Bill Russell defensively, Bill Russell rebounding the basketball, I'd probably go that direction. But I don't hate the idea of Dikembe Mutombo. I don't hate the idea of Hakeem Olajuwon. I don't hate the idea of Rudy Gobert. I'm not super oh, passionate no, about on. it one way or the other. Like, Rudy creates an, a defensive system all to himself. Like, he is the system. But, I mean, to your point, when you have a trophy named after you that goes to the best defensive player, you know, that's a pretty good argument that you can make. I think we can make a lot of arguments as to different players around the league that are an entire defense to themselves. Really? Like Rudy? No. Who else? i throw Anthony Davis in that conversation. He's a great defender. No doubt about it. So you found two. Two total. That's it. Yeah, that might be it. That might be it. Now I might throw Wemby in there. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably a little bit too early for Wemby. Rudy is a great, great defender. It's Minnesota that he's playing with. Their defensive ranking is the same that Rudy had when he was in Utah. And it's not like he was surrounded by a bunch of great elite defensive players in Utah. And he's certainly not surrounded by a bunch of great elite defensive players in Minnesota. Like, he makes defenses. He takes them to a completely different level. And his on-court, off-court stuff in Utah was striking and... I mean, again, like it's different because Hakeem Olajuwon's career is over. Bill Russell's career is over. Dikembe's career is over. But like the impact defensively that Rudy has had on multiple teams, mm, it's tough to overlook. Despite the fact that, you know, he has a hard time switching and stuff like that. The one bad thing that he does, people pick apart. I'll give Rudy his flowers. I certainly would hope so. He's a multi-time defensive player of the year. All right. On that note, we're going to take a break, but don't go too far because when we come back, we're going to bring it back to the Cavs and discuss how dangerous this team can be at full strength. To become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and myself, subscribe to Subtext, sign up for a 14-day free trial, or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word STOP 
It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from myself and Chris. This isn't just our podcast, it's your podcast, and the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Let's talk about the Cavs' recent success. They are nearly back to full strength aside from Dean Wade and Ty Jerome still being out. They're 6-2 and two in their last eight games and have beaten teams like the 76ers, the Nuggets, and the Warriors, all of whom were thought to be high contenders for a championship run this season. We've talked about consistency all year, Chris. How can the Cavs best maintain this run of success? Yeah, it's all about defense. It is. I know people get enamored with offense, and the Cavs are very, very focused on trying to raise their offensive ceiling. And I think there are signs that their offense is going to continue to rise, especially with more familiarity, continuity. They have the kind of offensive talent to rise up the rankings. But this is a defense-first organization. This is a defense-first team. And it's not surprising to me, Ethan, that they are 6-2 and two in their last eight during a stretch where teams are struggling to score the ball against them. They gave up 95 against Portland, 100 against Detroit, 109 to the explosive high-octane Denver Nuggets. You just throw the Miami game out the window because they punted on that one. 102 against Toronto, 105 against Atlanta, and Atlanta came into that game averaging 120 on the year. Like, that's who the Cavs have to be if they're going to continue to bank wins, if they're going to continue to build momentum, if they're going to continue to be a legitimate title contender. They've got to be defense first and foremost. And and there are reasons why they had some slippage at the beginning of the season, and we've talked about those enough on the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. But the turnaround for the Cavs has come on the defensive end of the floor. And it's not surprising to me that they started to go on this run where they started winning games more consistently the minute that Jared Allen came back into the lineup. You know when a team is really getting back into its groove on the defensive end, when the players are making note of it. Today at practice, Karis LeVert even mentioned, he said that the defense has been getting better. They're getting back into their groove together. And a large part of it is because of Jared Allen, Evan Mobley, and how the second unit has been so helpful in switching and allowing guards to come in and come out and play at full capacity without knowing that, oh, I'm going to be tired, but I got to keep going because there's nobody else behind me. For this Cavs team, that's not the case. But last question for this podcast, the Cavs are currently eighth in the Eastern Conference and just four games behind the first place Celtics. I know you don't like talking about chasing wins, Chris, which I don't think we're doing or they're doing right now. But what I want to get is your prediction on where we could potentially see Cleveland finish in the standings come playoff time. I'm going to put them at five in the East. I think it'll shake out to be the Celtics, Bucks, 76ers, and then the Pacers, and then the Cavs. What do you think? The Pacers are such a strange team because you cannot discount them because that offense is just ridiculous. Like... Tyrese Halliburton, the numbers that he puts up, the pace that Indiana plays, the amount that they can score on a nightly basis. Ethan, they're almost averaging 130 points per game. It's insane 
how good they are offensively. But they're so bad defensively. <laughs> they're giving up 125 a night. And if you just don't want just, you know, opponent points per game because they play at such a high pace, so that's going to create more possessions and that's going to lead to poor defensive numbers and all that kind of stuff. There's definitely some truth to that. There's no doubt about it. It's not like their defensive rating, if you want to look at that number, is any better. They are 29th in the NBA in terms of defensive rating. The only team that has a worse defense than them is the Charlotte Hornets, and they suck too. And then right around Indiana is the Washington Wizards, and they seem incapable of consistently winning games. So like, those are the teams that the Pacers are around in terms of defense. And you might sit there and say, well, it certainly doesn't matter if you're scoring 130 a night. It's hard for me to see them keeping up that kind of offensive pace. At some point, you think that that is going to regress a little bit. So they're a weird team and I can't really figure them out. Orlando has been awesome this year. 13 and 5. They're 9 and 1 in their last 10. They've won eight in a row. Their point differential is really, really impressive. Like, they've got the third best point differential in the Eastern Conference. They've got the fifth best point differential in the entire NBA. So it's hard for me to look at them and say that they're a fluke, despite the fact that they're really, really young. They haven't been there. And it's almost like you don't know what you don't know. So... Am I going to keep them up there? It seems like what you're saying is, is the top three are a lock. No, I don't think the top three are a lock because I just think it's too early for Orlando. When I said top three, I meant Celtics, Bucks, 76ers. I think that's probably right. The 76ers are kind of a weird team to me too, but they are better coached this year. Embiid is an MVP candidate. Tyrese Maxey has taken the leap. Yeah, I mean, I think those three are kind of on a different tier, if we're being honest about it. I wasn't sure that Philadelphia would be on that same tier with Milwaukee and Boston coming into the year because all the James Harden drama that they were going to have to deal with, and it was so hard to predict what kind of package they were going to get in return for Harden and how that was going to hurt them from a talent and depth standpoint. But I do think they have enough. I think they have enough top-level talent, and I do think they have enough depth, especially when Kelly O'Bray Jr. comes back. So yeah, I mean, I'm hemming and hawing a little bit, but but I do think it's Boston, Milwaukee, Philadelphia on a different tier. And, and I think the Cavs can finish fourth, just like they did last year. I, I think they're the kind of team that it would make sense for them to continue to get better as the season goes, as they continue to figure things out, as they continue to get more players healthy. The fact, Ethan, that they're 10 and 8, despite only having their projected starting lineup for seven or eight games to this point, despite the fact that they've used so many different starting lineups, despite the fact that Donovan Mitchell has missed a chunk of games and Darius Garland and Jared Allen, it's not like scrubby end-of-the-bench players that are missing these games for the Cavs. It's some of their most important players. And they've had to navigate a very, very difficult portion of their schedule while dealing with all of that. The schedule is going to get easier. They're going to be healthier. So I do think they're set up to make like a mini run here and capitalize on this opportunity. I do think they can be the four seed in the Eastern Conference when it's all said and done, just like they were last year. 
The big question for them, though, is are they better equipped to win a first-round playoff series? And can they avoid the New York Knicks in a first-round playoff matchup? Because that's just a really, really difficult matchup for the Cavs. And sometimes winning or losing a playoff series is often going to be determined by how you match up with the other guy. And all that insight will wrap up today's episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. But remember to become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and I by subscribing to Subtext and interact with us on a daily basis. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word stop. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from myself and Chris. This isn't just our podcast, it's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. Y'all be safe. We out.